Welcome back to our podcast, Diaspora Dialogues. I'm Sambhavi. And I'm Ramya. And in our first season, we're doing a deep dive into the country of Sri Lanka. In each of our episodes, we'll be inviting subject matter experts, either working on the ground or affiliated with the local organisation, to help inform our conversation about the social, economic and political climate of the nation. In this podcast, we will be examining activism and the challenges of being a journalist and a human rights defender. We welcome back our guests from the previous episode, Ruki Fernando and Ahilan Kadurgama. So, Ruki, we know you've spent a lot of time on the ground in the north and east of Sri Lanka among the Tamil and Muslim communities. So, could you give us an example of an ongoing issue you're currently working on? Okay, I think in the last few months, I've been quite uh, concerned about freedom of expression and no crackdowns yep. on freedom of expression. Yep. Uh, so, I think uh, COVID has... Uh, uh, affected not only electoral democracy but democracy as a whole and electoral elections is of course obviously as one part of uh, democracy and so what i've said before uh, like the high degree of militarization visibly at checkpoints and barriers but also in terms of uh, appointments uh, has kind of undermined uh, i think our democratic system and continues to do so uh, but also the arrest of people who are expressing some dissent uh, has, I think, uh, been amplified during the time of COVID. And there was a uh, kind of a public statement issued by the police, uh, I think, on the 1st or 2nd of April, uh, saying that people who criticize government officials and question government officials will be arrested and legally, uh, legal action will be taken against them. And people have been arrested. So, Rookie, we know you've been working with prisoners for years now. How do you feel COVID has affected their conditions? We saw prisons as being you know, possible breeding grounds for COVID. And in our system, uh, prison system, we have provisions which enables uh, certain prisoners to be not to be in detention. Uh, like there are a lot of prisoners in Sri Lanka who are there because they can't pay the fine. Uh, for very kind of relatively minor crimes. Uh, then there are people who are remanded as suspects for many years, you no know, long, long uh, years uh, as a, just as a suspect. And we had situations where people who were remanded suspects for 15 years have been acquitted by courts as not guilty. Uh, and there are other provisions also, even people who are convicted can be released on bail because of good conduct and other factors. Uh, so again, this was, I think the government didn't really pay uh, much attention to the rights of uh, prisoners as well. And I think more, most recently there has been at least two people identified uh, in prisons uh, infected with uh, COVID. But there are other, I think, problems that prisoners face. The visits to the prisons were stopped uh, and a lot of them relied on the visits for like moral support, but also food. Uh, and also even the lawyers were not allowed to uh, have access to prisoners for a long time. And just when it started, uh, opening up again, like for visitors and lawyers. Again, now it has been uh, restricted. Uh, so yeah, so these are a couple of things I've been uh, working on and you know, concerned about in the last couple of months. What challenges have you faced and do you continue to face in your experience as a human rights activist working in Sri Lanka? Uh, I think the much talked about uh, challenge uh, for activism is, of course, I think, you no know, fear of political reprisals, uh, primarily, you know, uh, from the state, from the military, the intelligence agencies, uh, uh, such as uh, there are various bodies under the police department, like the criminal investigation department, the terrorism investigation department, which have been going after activists and dissenting voices. Uh, but, uh, and that is very much there. And I think those fears are increasing uh, since the last presidential elections. Uh, but other than that, I think there are also uh, challenges of uh, 
engaging with the state and uh, different governments uh, that come into power at different times. Uh, so how do we, as activists, uh, keep some you know, uh, true to principles and values, but at the same time have some degree of uh, engagement, dialogue, and maybe uh, you know, occasionally some collaboration uh, as well with the state. Uh, the same with uh, statutory institutions. And I think what kind of engagement, critical engagement we can have. And there are always uh, differences among uh, activists about the nature and the degree of uh, engagement, uh, ranging from outright boycott and rejection to uh, being co-opted. And we've had, uh, particularly in the last government, where some activists were actually joined the the government uh, as officials, uh, joint statutory institutions. And I think some of them, uh, particularly, you know, if you look at the Human Rights Commission of Sri Lanka, the Right to Information Commission, uh, I think activists joining these statutory bodies, not uh, government bodies, uh, made a big difference. I think they were able to brought their sense of independence, uh, you know, their competencies and uh, skills uh, to make those institutions work better for the public good. And I think another challenge, uh, is actually dealing with some uh, you know, micro level uh, things uh, and also macro level things. Uh, for example, I think for someone who has been arrested uh, and that person's family, uh, it's very crucial to have uh, you know, solidarity and support to, get, uh, to deal with the violations that that person is uh, facing immediately. Uh, it would be the same for a family of a disappeared person who wants to go to courts and would like to have some company and not to go alone or would like to have a vigil and would like other people to support her in that. So I think there are a lot of things that is done at a very micro level. Uh, but I think uh, we cannot uh, ignore as activists you know, the more macro level policies, laws, institutions uh, and trends uh, that have an impact on the, these individual uh, situations of uh, people. Uh, but at the same time, you know, dealing only with uh, macro level issues uh, and not paying attention to individual victims and uh, uh, families, survivors, affected communities uh, makes it uh, less meaningful in a way. We can't necessarily tell a survivor or a victim family that no, we cannot uh, come with you or we cannot uh, talk with you but uh, because we have bigger things to uh, deal with uh, advocacy and all that. So I think uh, finding a kind of you no know, way balancing these two and you no know, trying to uh, let each feed into the other uh, is also a challenge. Uh, I'll stop there because it can go on for a long time. Ahilan, this question's for you. Um, how do you find the challenge of being a journalist and writing critically on politics and society? Yeah, even at the level of um, analysis, trying to identify uh, the problems because they can be very murky. Um, on the one hand, as uh, Ruki mentioned, we are sort of seeing rising authoritarianism uh, along with uh, militarization, which means that uh, it becomes, in essence, an attack on dissent. Um, while that's also happening at the level of the state, there are also, you know, either proxies of the government or other very reactionary uh, social actors. Uh, who also try to uh, divide communities, uh, society as a whole through social media and other forums as well. So along with the, the COVID-19 crisis, for example, we've seen also attacks on the, on the Muslim community. Um, and it happens at, at, at many levels, right? Through kind of uh, social media, propaganda attacks in the mainstream, media, the way in which they characterized the Muslim community early on. There were even efforts to sort of 
portrayed the Muslim community as the cause for the uh, spread of COVID-19. And then while all that was happening, there was uh, the arrest of a, uh, a well-known prominent uh, Muslim uh, lawyer, uh, Hijaz uh, Hezbollah. So <clears throat> when uh, that's the climate in the country, it, it also often leads to uh, self-censorship or kind of uh, you're faced with like a overwhelming uh, right-wing reactionary chauvinist discourse on on one side and and those who want to put forward uh, progressive views you know it's they're either silenced or it just seems like a, a drop in the bucket so that becomes a huge challenge and how would you say this is observed when it comes to the different communities in sri lanka definitely at the, at the national level what's happening with uh, majoritarian tendencies with Sinhala Buddhist nationalists. But this has also been true um, uh, over the last decade even in, in the Tamil public sphere as well, right? So we've seen sort of uh, nationalists who have like an exclusive ethnic agenda dominate these, uh, the media. And um, so some of it comes from the state, but also comes from very uh, reactionary nationalist forces, uh, both from the Singhala community and the Tamil community. So that also uh, leads to the silencing of uh, dissent. Um, but having said that, I think in Sri Lanka so far, there's also room uh, to, for dissent to keep pushing on uh, progressive concerns. And, and that space has to be used. So if if uh, journalists or columnists or analysts become silent, then that would be giving up the space that exists. Instead, you have to keep writing and try to continue to uh, expand the space for democracy. Because when you're talking about freedom of expression, to the extent that we expand that space, um, then it, it creates room for others also to enter into those debates. Absolutely. Um, I think he, this is a bit of a naive question, but I think one that um, has been on our mind for some time. When you talk about, you know, uh, the space that journalists have and to keep pushing on it, we actually, on the other side, because we are diaspora, we often are left with the question of where do we go for accurate information and objective news sources? That, that, that's a tough one because it, it depends on, on who is writing, even in the same uh, newspaper, uh, you can have uh, both a very, uh, you know, a nationalist commentator with an agenda and, and, and somebody who's trying to uh, put forward more uh, critical views or someone who's aligned to one political party or the other. Mm. So, so you have to sort of uh, scan the newspapers. I think all of us look for certain uh, columnists, certain uh, newspapers, the, the, the English newspapers, uh, you know, provide a different kind of narrative than I would say the, the, the Tamil newspapers. And I don't know, but what I've heard from my friends, the, the singular newspapers, the, the, the vernacular press tends to be a bit more uh, nationalist and uh, one-sided, but even within the English newspapers, um, it can vary. And, and you know, as, as the... Uh, as the, the state and the, and the regime in power becomes more and more authoritarian, we even see all the newspapers also tending towards 
self-censorship. This has historically been the, the case in uh, Sri Lanka, but I would uh, continue to uh, sort of go to the mainstream press because, um, uh, you know, there is even more, I think, uh, uh, kind of uh, drastic uh, positions, uh, extreme positions in, in social media, unless you're part of certain uh, circles. So, um, mm. so there's, I don't think there's any easy answer to this other than to kind of, you know, continue to engage and look for uh, the kind of uh, journalists and columnists that you want to follow. Absolutely. Um, Rookie, in, in your experience um, as a human rights defender, you know, how, how protected is, is freedom of speech? Um, you know, what protections are there for journalists and activists? Um, and how reliable do you find these mechanisms? Uh, I mean, there is legal protection. Uh, I mean, freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of assembly uh, is covered uh, in our constitution. They can be restricted uh, again by law for on certain grounds only. Uh, but in practice, I think uh, we've seen for many decades, uh, not even years, that this has not been very helpful. No, it's, it's on very rare occasions that our judicial system has actually upheld uh, these uh, freedom of expression uh, assembly and association. So support has generally come from peers. So when someone is uh, facing a lot of pressure, threats, uh, intimidation, they would turn to their own colleagues uh, or friends. Uh, sometimes it's in their own institution or uh, the agency or sometimes it's uh, outside. So I think uh, we have always had informal kind of you know, networks, support networks for people who were threatened uh, and facing intimidation. Uh, but I think they are a bit too loose and informal and a bit too fragmented. And probably in the last few years, you know, there was a bit more space for free expression in uh, 2015 to 2000, end of last year. Uh, so I think this uh, was uh, taken for granted a bit probably, although there were continuing incidences. Uh, so I think we have to build up more uh, while we try to use the existing legal and uh, institutional judicial system to the extent possible. I think we have to build up more networks of uh, support and solidarity. Uh, these are also very important because much of the pressure comes from uh, you know, uh, personal, at a kind of personal level. Like for me, for example, you no, know, much of the pressure has come from my uh, parents, from even friends and colleagues, who kind of you no know, tell me uh, why I'm writing about this and it'll be better to you know, not to write about this topic and stay off. You no, know? so I think a lot of people, uh, uh, professional journalists. I'm not a professional journalist. I write occasionally. There's a lot of professional journalists face this kind of pressure, and I think to withstand this pressure, that social uh, support system and solidarity. Uh, is very uh, important, no? and I maybe I will touch on because you mentioned uh, one of you mentioned about the, the diaspora, no? and I think uh, in some ways there could be you know uh, diaspora groups, uh, different persons and groups could also explore you no know, ways of being uh, in solidarity with people who are you no know, facing uh, reprisals in Sri Lanka for their activism or for their writing, but I think maybe uh, I don't know whether it's a matter of uh, 
terminology that you had used no but in the email somebody we had sent for example no you talked about how can the dialogue of diaspora shape activism on the ground uh, mm-hmm. but i think that formulation itself is very uh, problematic no so i think it should quite be the reverse about no how can activism and dialogues uh, on the ground uh, here uh, whether it's in jaffna or kandy or colombo or gol how mm-hmm. can that dialogue that activism shape uh, the dialogues in the diaspora Mm. No, yeah, that's a very good to, one. So that should be, I think, no, the the reverse uh, is, I think, what should be there. And I think that it's that kind of a approach that would actually uh, enable uh, at least some sections of uh, the diaspora, because diaspora is not one, uh, mm. to be in solidarity mm. and no play a more constructive role. Yeah, that's that's actually mm. very insightful. I mean, that was going to be our next question. This is to both Ahilan and um, Ruki. Like, how do you how do you think we can play a more active role, and what role do we actually have to play in activism? I, I completely agree with uh, Ruki on the importance of um, the diaspora and expatriate community being reflective of the changes, the kind of challenges that uh, activists and um, particularly progressive activists face in, uh, in, in Sri Lanka and, and to see how to be in solidarity. But the kind of unfortunate uh, reality over the last um, uh, decades, and, and, and I think this uh, started during the war, is that the kind of discourses in the diaspora um, have, been, have, have had a very negative impact on um, uh, the kind of uh, activism on the ground, right? But by, by that I mean that more kind of very nationalist, almost chauvinist discourses in the diaspora get reproduced in the Sri Lankan media. If, if you read the English press even, you would see a, a lot of articles uh, written by people uh, from both the Sinhala diaspora and the Tamil diaspora, which are very divisive. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of feeds into uh, people's thinking locally as well. So um, I've always said that, you know, even as we are thinking of inter-ethnic, building inter-ethnic relations, coexistence in Sri Lanka, it, it's very important that those initiatives are taken forward within the diaspora first. So even before the, the, the diaspora, the expatriate community thinks about how they can intervene in Sri Lanka, that I think it's important that uh, they create spaces for coexistence and interethnic relations in the diaspora communities themselves. And, and that itself uh, will be a very uh, positive thing in terms of uh, developments in Sri Lanka. Thank, thanks, Ahilan. That was actually a really, really thoughtful response. Rookie, did you have any you know, comments to make on that? So I think uh, since I know Sambhavi, I think uh, you know, you coming here and trying to spend, uh, I know you come here regularly, uh, but you spent a significant some time, I think about three weeks with me as well. So I think that kind of a yeah. approach is quite uh, helpful, you know, to, uh, uh, to be more engaged in a more constructive way and more grounded way. Having those, uh, you know, diverse uh, personal contacts, I think is very important. And I think uh, it's, ideally it should also be kind of across the country to the extent possible, you know, not only in uh, one district or one uh, region. Like particularly, I think for many Tamils who are in the diaspora, their primary contacts are only in either in Jaffna or Batiklor or you know, mm. in that way. So I think it's important to uh, diversify 
by your contacts. And I think coming here is, of course, uh, one very constructive way, even for short periods. And I know that people do come here for you know, the temple, Nalu festival, like for the old pupils reunions in some big schools and you know, for various social family functions, people do come here. So I think those opportunities could be more kind of organic ways of trying to uh, stay in touch. Uh, I mean, of course, uh, newspapers, websites are important as a regular source of information. But I think the, the personal contacts are also uh, quite important. And I mean, I also maybe want to add that sometimes the, the diaspora uh, find it easy to shape the agenda of the most vulnerable and uh, you know, people who are really facing difficult times. Like I know, for example, uh, families of disappeared people uh, you know, who have been really struggling to for truth justice around the north and east of Sri Lanka in the last several years. Uh, they are desperate for support. And there is not much support within uh, the Sri Lanka. No, I mean, there are people who support, but not too much. So it's quite natural that they would uh, look for any support from anywhere, kind of. No, if they actually feel uh, that they are getting any form of sympathy, support, uh, they would welcome it. And then that gives, I think, has given some diaspora groups uh, 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 kind of a very uh, unjust or kind of a power over them uh, to shape their agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, so after some initial support, uh, they, the diaspora groups becomes the agenda setter for the victim families and the affected communities, which is quite unfortunate, I think, and which moves away uh, from what I said earlier, you know, where the, the agenda and the dialogues of the diaspora should be primarily be determined by the activism uh, on the ground. Yes, so I think absolutely. it's very important not to, not to take advantage of uh, those uh, vulnerabilities of uh, certain persons and communities. We hope you liked this conversation and found it interesting. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback on our episodes. If you liked what you heard, please do forward on to your family and friends. Thanks for listening. Catch you guys later.